protest is not necessarily about being in the front lines all the time. Uh, I think we protest every day. Um, we protest in places that are unseen. Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR for short, here at the University of Cambridge. I'm Surya Mohammed, and I'm a PhD student studying politics and international studies here at Cambridge. And I'm Matt Mahmoudi, and I'm a PhD student at the Center of Development Studies, and we're your hosts for this season of Declarations Podcast. With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with the people who study them, the people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. Today, we're talking about the right to protest. Is there such a right? Are all protests legitimate? In what ways does the act of protesting in its various shapes and forms come to be the conduit through which claim making in the sphere of rights can be realized? Also joining us today are our team of regular panelists, Michael Barton. Hello. Yusha Bastani. Hello. And our resident pessimistic lawyer, Arjajit Basu. Hello. I'm really glad that we're having this conversation about the right to protest today because I think that it's under-discussed as a specific right which is distinct from the right to freedom of speech. Um, protest is something that I think people underestimate how easy it is for governments to shut down. So whether they invoke the excuse of kind of national security, which is used to, for example, criminalize efforts to carry out boycotts against Israel, uh, it's also used to shut down strikes, or whether they use claims about kind of public order and criminality. So for example, in the case of Black Lives Matter type protests, you have the excuse of kind of property destruction and vandalism being used to shut down protests. Generally, governments claim extremely broad discretionary powers to shut protests down. So in that sense, it's an extremely vulnerable right. I think it's only becoming more vulnerable over time because improvements in technology are making it easier for uh, easier than ever for governments to, to police who's protesting and to surveil who's protesting. So that's dragnet surveillance, facial recognition technology, etc. So I think we need to be having a very serious conversation about the right to protest and about government's respect for that right uh, in order to continue kind of carrying out effective activism in future. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting there is that the same people who are meant to be protecting the right to protest are often the people being protested against. So then when you bring in this question of state security, it gets super tricky. So yeah. looking at the context of Cambridge even, um, or the UK more broadly, I'm thinking about the PREVENT program, which is a counter-extremism program. So even just here last week, this program was used to change the makeup of a panel about BDS, which you mentioned as well as being criminalized elsewhere. Yeah, so moves like that, that criminalize protests in this kind of insidious way, I think, create this climate of fear um, that then it's not so much that, so in some ways the state isn't guaranteeing the right to protest or the university isn't guaranteeing the right to protest. And in other ways, it's also making people fearful of taking up the right to protest. So it may not explicitly shut down all forms of protest, um, but you get into this issue where no one feels safe protesting. So there's also that to think about, I think. Um, absolutely, Nyusha. And, you know, when we talk about how you can have legal protections for certain rights, the legal protection exists. You have the Freedom of Assembly in the ICCPR. You have various constitutions across the world that do recognize the right to peaceful assembly and in many ways recognize the right to protest. You have judicial decisions. So the law on this is clear. A state is obliged both under international law and under domestic constitutional law to protect the right to protest. However, 
as nusha correctly said most of the protests are in many ways directed at those who are supposed to um protect it and that's where the state starts legal manipulation and that's why i am pessimistic of this law as well much like i'm skeptical of other laws so i'll just give you a couple of examples in india recently we had a, bun- a large number of students from jawaharlal nehru university in delhi who protested the fact that a suspected terrorist was not given due process and they protested the death penalty now it just so happened that this terrorist uh was from the state of kashmir which is an extremely contested area in indian political discourse so the state and the present government basically slapped a sedition charge on them and sedition simply put basically means that you are carrying out offenses that threaten public order in the state but they use this to silence a bunch of very very passionate students who were simply protesting the fact that due process wasn't given and the death penalty so it's interesting how legal provisions even though they're supposed to protect this right have been manipulated in multiple contexts um so i'm really looking forward to what embali has to say on how um states could or states and civil society can use legal provisions in order to further and protect the right when it is legitimately or can be legitimately used i think all those interventions are really important the other thing i also wanted to touch on um as we get into this conversation about the right to protest is uh what it means for states themselves to sanction what legitimate protest looks like um to issue permits to create public space um and whether or not we can escape this kind of vision of legitimate versus illegitimate protest and kind of expand our vision of what protest means um and have a more all encompassing kind of radical vision of where protest can can be exercised not just necessarily with bodies in streets but uh resistance in multiple forms um and that may look different in different contexts and the other thing that i also wanted to bring into the conversation is right now we're talking about uh state suppression which is incredibly important and very pertinent um but uh, many times especially now uh, in a neoliberal age um the things that are being protested are um economic in nature um they might be against uh, transnational corporations um having the capacity to have either relationships with the state that themselves repress speech or uh actually shutting down the platform for speech that is um radical to be suppressed so i think there's many many aspects to discuss Absolutely. And and bringing this all together into sort of a, a current affairs uh framing. So, I think uh what has been an interesting development in South Africa is um like a lot of protests around education and um they've now emerged again and it's always at this time of year when um the, the reality of exorbitant fees becomes more pressing um and also uh students have to think about whether they're going to finish this year or not uh the academic year or not so um one i think a uh, factor now um this year is that there was a fees commission um that was um kind of set up in 2016 to to look at whether it would be viable to have free education in south africa the report has come out um it was about three months late um it, it came out and it said that it wasn't viable to have free education uh, but however they came up with an alternative model uh that enables for kind of the um, 
the the skills based institutions, um, so the TVET colleges, um, to use sort of a loan model to to ensure that students have have access to education at a loan and and that's quite uh, concerning especially because South Africa is, is sort of a crime scene at the moment because of the private sector and this model relies on the private sector so it's quite concerning that the state is so willing to um sort of shoot the the youth in the foot before they they even have their foot in the door um and and so the youth i mean we have huge our, our unemployment rates are huge so um to have youth in debt before they can even work is is quite concerning and and so i think in in south africa um an, an observation that i had from both my work and my activism is that the right of right to protest is a right that is used by mostly youth and and by those who ha- who really don't have much access to the other institutions or the political institutions um so instead of going to parliament and sitting in um some of the committee meetings or taking kind of some of their cases to the courts which are inaccessible the youth and um the unemployed then have no no kind of other they so the youth <laughs> and the unemployed have no choice but to protest so it becomes the only resort in some cases protest is the last resort and in those cases people have tried all the other avenues and when they've exhausted those avenues they resort to protest um in south africa protests happen every day um and they're they're mostly around issues um that are linked to uh the economic issues in South Africa so the extractors industry is um like one of the industries that attract a lot of protests and that's largely because there's uh, no accountability and and because it's just the private sector thinks that it's unaccountable and that's another example of uh where the dignity of workers but also people's lives aren't uh people's lives um aren't considered and people's lives aren't seen to be dignified enough to be um undignified enough to to be lives that uh cannot be like polluted by um some of the environmental effects that mining has so um in my work a lot of the protests were either around the extractors industry or they were around housing and land and that's a pressing issue in South Africa cuz land redistribution hasn't happened um in the new so-called democratic dispensation um and and so there's definitely a trend um and and my activism was kind of linking up all these struggles and realizing that we are not part of a born free generation um our generation is actually just kind of feeling the effects of a negotiated settlement and and that negotiated settlement did not 
give the majority of South Africans e- e- economic power and freedom. And, and so those are some of the dynamics playing out in my context uh, at the moment. So I first met Mbali uh, Matandela, at least over Skype, in 2016 when we were scoping out activists and human rights groups who were using digital technologies to aid them in speaking truth to power. And Mbali was, of course, involved in a lot of capacity building and movement building with activists in South Africa. And I've since learned about her activism in the Rose Must Fall movement, and we're very excited to be speaking with her in this segment. Mbali, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so I, I'm Bali Matandela. Um, Bali is my political name. Um, Valente is my public intellectual name. And I, I see those aspects of kind of my activism as, as aspects that are relevant to conversations about protest um, because protest is not necessarily about being in the front lines all the time. Uh, I think we protest every day. Um, we protest in places that are unseen. So um, my activism goes beyond being in the front lines, being shot at by police. Um, and and so I think it's quite relevant to speak about my activism. Uh, so I started organizing as a black feminist uh, in, in my university at the University of Cape Town. And and, and from there, I think that we had several conversations about the institutional culture of the University of Cape Town, but more broadly, the kind of spatial apartheid that still exists in Cape Town and, and how the university is positioned in a way where it's pristine elite and it's looking down at the poverty of Cape Town. And so from kind of these conversations that we had in a very small group of black feminists, um, a catalytic event uh, happened at the University of Cape Town where uh, one activist threw feces on a statue and and that was to disrupt this pristine um, image of the university, but also to bring the realities of um, like majority of the people living in Cape Town to the university. This catalytic protest um, sort of sparked a lot of the political consciousness um, on campus and it brought us together to have a conversation about what it meant. From that conversation, it was then established that this was kind of a performative act that was making the issue more urgent, the issue that uh, we needed to change the institutional culture of the university, but it also was no longer um, relevant and necessary to have a university in Africa as opposed to an African university in Cape Town. And and so that started the necessary conversation about decolonization in South Africa. And before the movement was even called Roads Must Fall, it was called Statue Must Fall, but we realized that we were not trying to just you know topple down the statue, but we were um, challenging a whole ideology. And we were challenging white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, and how these merge to form a society that hasn't transformed. So wanting roads to fall um, started an ideological conversation, but also the protests that would 
later lead roads to fall um and since then i the, those protests i think have had um effects on just broader society not necessarily just the university when we started off decolonization was a swear word it unearthed a lot of the racial prejudice and discrimination that happened in um, private spaces is then brought it to the public and now two years later <laughs> decolonization is not a swear word um it is within the public consciousness within public discourse it's being integrated into curriculum so um like the effects of the movement go beyond even the south african context and 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 i think drawing from my experience in the movement we we were challenging a lot um, in a, and we're trying to challenge it in a very short space of time. And one of the challenges that were very important to me was changing kind of the, the politics of black liberation movements. So I see Rose Must Fall as a black liberation movement and uh, explicitly adopting intersectionality was kind of, was very progressive for th that particular political moment. It's now brought intersectionality into public discourse as well. Um, it's been challenged, it's been developed. Um, it's also been given to the people to develop as a theory, uh, which was something that wasn't happening. It was happening in very niche spaces um, and only in like women and gender studies at the University of Cape Town. So from there, I then wrote my research from the movement. So I was an insider writing about this movement and the internal dynamics of it. And that was quite interesting, uh, quite interesting. That was quite an interesting um, position to have within the movement because it gave me the privilege of having information that I could go back to and like reflect on uh, after a particular political moment happened. And it's interesting studying a, a, a very dynamic space because one day is not the same as another, but it changed my idea of what an intellectual is or what an academic is. Um, it really made me think about scholar activism and how I would position myself in the university um, from then onwards. And, and I would say that, you know, after leaving the university as a student and then repositioning as someone who is situated at a university but is also in civil society and the Right to Protest project, uh, I think that positioning allowed me to work on society from the university, like explicitly not even deal with um, students necessarily. So I, I did not have an academic role. My role did not exclude academic uh, responsibilities. So um, I, I was a teacher, I was a, uh, an activist, I was a supervisor. Um, at the same time, I was also the first point of call when people who have, were in trouble on the front lines. So I repositioned as, you know, the, the observer, but also a very active observer. Um, I was also counsel for people who needed help. Um, I was also a problem solver. 
I went into um, the Right to Protest project knowing the, the terrain, knowing what activism looks like, feels like, and what opposition feels like too. And, and so I was constantly drawing on that experiential knowledge. And yeah, that's been my experience and it hasn't ended. And me being in the UK is an extension of my activism. Um, some say it's controversial, but we can have, we can have a conversation about that. <laughs> yes, yes. That's amazing. Um, so one of the reasons that I've been fangirling over you for like the last week, ever since <laughs> Matt uh, confirmed the interview, um, is that you approach things from a specifically black feminist ethic um, and that your work, uh, both the work that I've been able to access online, but also your history of work specifically deals from within that uh, that space of knowledge and that your activism actually reflects that as well. Um, and so like Audre Lorde always said, like. Uh, you don't have a single issue struggle because we don't live single issues lives. And then like you've also incorporated Kimberly Crenshaw's concept of in intersectionality as well, um, which means that you can't organize around one axis of struggle. It's it's race, it's class and more. It's gender identity, it's sexual orientation, um, it's nationality, it's all of these things at once. So um, combining this with the conversation that we were having earlier about the right to protest. So one of the things that you did mention as well as the extractive industry so how do uh, the movements that you're uh, a part of or at least uh, an active observer of um, communicate with one another and how do they move along those different axes in order to create s communities of struggle or solidarity? Mm. So your agenda analysis in terms of like um, where I was situated wasn't really um, something that was explicitly part of my job, but it was uh, part of how I discerned how what was happening. So the, the state responds very differently according to who is in the front lines and um, who is part of that particular movement. So within the extractives industry, what was very interesting is that Although people were situated within one movement, they had uh, different demands. So based on their gendered roles and their gendered identity, their interests in being in a particular movement were very different, but they were able to mobilize and, and they were able to find synergies to form that movement. And, and so in discerning it and discerning some of the issues, you're able to see that Unemployment plays out very differently according to your gender identity. Um, and also, based on your gendered role, certain resources are more important. So for the woman in one of the, the communities we worked in in Bumalanga, water was quite a vital resource for their everyday lives. Whereas for the men, it was a completely different resource that was part of their concern. So you see there, based on their gendered roles, their concerns are different. Um, and I think it was that they, they navigated gender and sexuality in very, very different ways, according to context. Um, and I think that's, that's also, it's indicative of South Africa's history, because you would be dealing with 
different cultures all the time and different gendered systems all the time. So um, the discerning had to be complex. Uh, we had to go there waiting to be surprised, to learn something new. And I think intersectionality allows you to do that, right? Because even within the categories, it's not homogenous. So even within a black gay men, like men category, there are so many intricacies in, within each category. And, and, and I think intersectionality allowed me to discern all of that. So I, I think as activists, as scholars, we need to be complex with how we discern these issues. Do you think that given that there are all these complexities, even within what might seem like a very narrow identity category or something very specific, there can be all these different concerns, different points of interest, do you think then that can introduce a danger of the loudest voices kind of dominating the conversation or certain voices dominating the conversation? And how does that bring in questions of leadership? How do you keep leaders accountable? Mm. So I'm, I'm going to reflect on just Rhythms 4 and then extrapolate from there. Um, so the way, the way in which we ensure that like all of our demands led to a point of synergy um, was that we had an intersectional audit committee that ensured that all the behaviors, um, the statements, um, and just the actions, the um, protest actions that we would embark on within the movement were considering all the voices in the movement. Uh, we also made decisions um, by consensus reaching. So um, even consensus was sometimes questioned and if a decision was made via flawed consensus, we would then table it um, for discussion again. Because we also realized that we were making a lot of decisions in a very short space of time and people were tired. Um, and groupthink starts to creep in and those voices, the dominant voices, also creep in when people are tired and not cognizant of power dynamics. And another way I think that we ensured that all these all, all these interests and all these demands were included in within the movement was that we had a mission statement that was retabled all the time um, so even our when our initial mission statement came out it had gone through an intensive process of integrating everyone's uh, concerns and demands and then we constantly looked back on it to reflect whether we were this movement we said we were on paper and 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 how are we responding to kind of the opposition and how was that affecting how uh, we respond to that so it was um, ref a reflexive process um, but also we, we were constantly in praxis, so we were intellectualizing what we were doing, but also doing it, and then intellectualizing the doing. Um, so I, I think that's a way of considering um, everyone's demands, but also of considering the identity of a particular movement. So I'm really interested in this notion of witnessing, right? And I think ally building in activism is super important, particularly when it comes to the right to protest, because we have to help amplify voices where voices are being purposefully kept down um, and not being heard. And I wonder, with your experience, particularly in the right to protest project, um, which is which is what I met you for, 
um, back in the days, you worked sort of extensively with students and activists on documenting police crackdowns, providing legal aid, capacity building. And I'm really wondering, sort of drawing from some of those best practices, both before and during and after your your work with Right to Protest, how did that help the, the Rose Must Fall uh, movement? Mm-hmm. And do you find that, that there's best practices from there that are shared and learned? So, so during the Rose Must Fall movement, uh, I would say protest was first very unpopular. And then there was a critical point where I think we had ignited in um, the political consciousness of kind of the country and the international community that that protest was um, welcomed. Um, it was popular and even kind of the opposition was condemned. Uh, but things changed. Uh, I think things changed at the beginning of 2016. And and then kind of the best practice that was used in 2015 no longer had the context to be um, applied to. Um, so I think with protest, best practice is really hard. It's hard to establish best practice because the context is forever changing and I think with an intensified protest the response from the the opposition became even more intensified so uh, initially the you know universities were sort of on the side of students and they were more quite reluctant to bring uh, police onto the university uh, but you see a huge shift at the beginning of 2016 where students are now confronted with security personnel, plural. So they first are confronted with uh, private security. So some of them are military trained um, and have been in the military in the past, but they're now part of private security. So they aren't trained to restrain from force. So um, yes, some of them might not have weapons but they do use force and and then students are confronted with police and and then depending on where the protest takes place if it's in a national key point uh, the military is allowed to step in and so in some of our protests that have been either around the union buildings or parliament we've had the military there as well so you see kind of three layers or levels of security personnel that you're confronted with if you put your body on the line. So sometimes like looking at um, best practice in 2015 cannot really be applied to 2016. And I mean, 2017 now people are still protesting. Um, So just, yeah. I haven't answered your question, I don't think. No, I think I think the answer is don't be complicit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty appropriate. <laughs> no, absolutely. So context change and therefore you can't have a set of best practices. And that's so true. I mean, just to sort of give an example from India as well with what you said about national key points being suppressed using military power. We have an act called the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which basically allows the armed forces to do whatever they want in certain states that are designated as problematic areas. And of course, they are problematic areas because there are 
problems with the way the state has been responding to demands. And the solution to that is not responding to the demands, but just saying that national security outweighs everything. My question was sort of related to this idea. And we often hear the term armchair activism, and that's related to what you were saying in the, in the, be- in the beginning as well about how there are various modes of, of protest. Now, you don't necessarily have to be on the street to be part of, of a protest, but sort of the criticism of the intellectuals who are involved in, in protest is that you don't really know what's going on in the ground. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I, I find that criticism slightly unfair. The criticism of law with regard to human rights is also the same, that, that you have a law, but you don't really know what's going on on the ground. So wh- as a lawyer or as an academic, what right do you have to sort of protest in this? So my question was, even if you aren't on the ground, or even if you are on the ground, what are the different ways in which you have found you can get involved in protests, even if it's not actually sort of being on the streets? What are the various modes in which, I mean, just I as a student here or, or anyone, I mean, regardless of where they are from, how can they get involved in causes they genuinely believe in, even if they don't have access to, I mean, places on, on the ground? <clears throat> so, so I believe in scholar activism, right? Um, I believe that the public intellectual has a role to play in society um, to shift the you know con- the consciousness of general society. I think we are living in a time that is reverting back to nationalism, back to kind of right-wing conservatism. So there there is a role to play without being on the ground um, because those ideas exist, right? And we need to battle the ideas as much as we need to um, be on the streets uh, battling the forces on the streets. So... Uh, I I definitely don't think that, you know, there's such a thing called armchair activism. Uh, I think it's it's a way of kind of stifling the effect that um, public intellectuals can have. So I think innovation and the f- the future, the imagined future that we need to have can come from those those conversations. Um, I think we're living in a time where there is a threat to intellectualism because people are um, using the attention economy to kind of put in ideas that work on people's uh, fears. And so we, we're a world that's operating on fear and alienation um, and threat, uh, but but not necessarily we're not necessarily discerning some of these issues, and so there's there's a role to play for public intellectuals, and the inverse as well. Like in addition to public intellectuals, you also have people who, um, because of the specific space in which they might occupy, do not have access to the street or access to a- outright resistance, verbal resistance. Um, for fear of losing their livelihoods, perhaps, or not having the capacity or the time to be able to contribute in that specific way. But there's many ways you can raise your kids to believe certain things. That's a radical act. You can uh, start to wear your hair in certain ways. That's a radical act. You can take up Occupy space in certain ways as well. So 100%, I agree with you 100% that even from the public intellectual side, but also um, from the side that may not be able to access those wider conversations in that specific way. Yeah, yeah. I think think I'm also 
also agree with that because um, I think we were very cognizant in the Rosemus Four movement that um, a lot of our activism wasn't, or the language wasn't reaching the majority of the country who doesn't have access to the university. And, you know, like decolonization translated to some of the, the other languages in South Africa doesn't really translate very well. Um, so we kind of, we had a project uh, where we took theory to people. So we would explain the theory and allow people to name it, um, to develop it for themselves. Uh, we had people develop um, intersectionality and attach it to like African philosophy. And that was profound. Um, and that's some of the work that the university can do um, that isn't about the university. You know, it's taking theory to the people and allowing them to name and discern their lives. So, yeah, um, I think that that's also activism. Something that relates to that that I think um, is a really important issue in these kinds of conversations is um, sort of the debate that exists about uh, critiquing institutions from within them. Um, and it's something that comes up a lot. Sometimes it's as kind of like a glib throwaway, uh, disingenuous thing, like how dare you, you know, protest capitalism when you own a phone or whatever, you know, other. Um, but it's also obviously it's a, it's a serious conversation. And, you know, it's a conversation whether it's protesting uh, the elitism of a university while attending that university or whether it's using theoretical tools that are rooted in you know access to specific educational experiences that most people don't have it's obviously a serious debate um so i'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on that and how that relates to your activism okay you're talking about the subversion yeah. uh, <laughs> so um i think in terms of my my activism um i've been very intentional about uh which doors i knock on and uh, I'm a Rhodes Scholar, and I was walked into kind of the, the Rhodes Scholarship as an activist uh, that will never kind of toast to the founder. Um, I have kind of no interest in knowing about Cecil John Rhodes more than I know about him today. I know that I don't want to be associated with him. Um, but... What I do know is that his wealth was accumulated because of my ancestry and, and that my act of subversion is being part of that, that, that process of giving back the reparations, giving back what my ancestry gave up, um, not because they wanted to, um, but they had to. So I think resistance from within needs to be very strategic, as all resistance must be. Um, but also, sometimes uh, resistance is also uh, shaped by the structure that you are resisting. So it tends to be in a university if it's about the university. And and people use the their available resources to resist that power structure. So uh, it, at UCT, at the University of Cape Town, we used words, we used the fact that some people were um, artists and performers. We use the fact that we had um, people who would think about the model, the funding model within the movement. So we used our available resources to form this movement that would see the future, envision the future of the university. So I, I, I think a lot of the protests that, that take place, take place from 
within the power structure or around it rather. So in the, in the extractors industry, people protest in the mine or they don't go to work, but it has to do with the mine and it has to stifle the status quo of that power structure in order to be effective. Sticking to the Rhodes Scholarship, so we were discussing yesterday about the issues of having the scholarship named after Cecil John Rhodes, such a despicable man. I mean, it's completely uh, correct that it's a way of him giving reparations, but what are the implications of having this sort of name in public spaces? And I mean, in, in any country that has the Rhodes Scholarship, the Rhodes Scholarship is basically a sign of, of brilliance, a sign of, of merit. And it's his name being associated with these brilliant people such as yourself in, in various parts of the world. Like, I mean, every undergrad in India as well aspires to be a Rhodes Scholar. But what are the sort of politics of having someone as despicable as him being, I mean, the being continuously renamed and sort of rebranded through these scholarships. Do you think that there is a value to maybe changing the name of the scholarship itself? Mm. No, I, I, I definitely think there's one, the, um, the politics of space. So of my body being in that space. And I mean, I'm disrupting the whole vision by me occupying that space to start off with. Um, he and a lot of other dead white men didn't want me to be uh, is situated in the university, but then also within that scholarship. So why must this scholarship be exclusively reserved for some people and not others? Um, and my body is disrupting that, but it's also disrupting his legacy that wasn't really questioned until um, you know some of these protests and. As an activist who was part of the Rose Must Fall movement, I, I think I'm a constant reminder of that legacy, just being in that space. Um, people often come to me and have that conversation about this leg his legacy. So yes, there's the politics of naming, but there's also the politics of just space. Yeah, and I've, I've taken up the space politics. And I think a lot of that can be said, not just for the Rhodes Scholarship, but our space as well, our, our sitting in ourselves as students of like an elite university like Cambridge that's premised basically its eliteness on its inaccessibility itself um, that has historically, um, we, we've done episodes on uh, its conservation of cultural heritage from indigenous peoples, not to mention its endowment and history and relationship to colonialism as well as slavery, which is true at Oxford as well as Cambridge. Um, and so one of the questions that um, really interests me um, is that on one, on one hand, you have the question of uh, your, yourself, inhabiting the space as subversive. Um, then you can also get to whether how much the space itself taints you, um, whether you have to cut off pieces of yourself in order to be legible as an academic in this space. How do you have to speak? How do you have to look? What do you have to say? What kind of knowledge formation do you have to produce <laughs> in order to be something that the space recognizes as valuable? Um, but on the other hand as well, um, there is something really interesting about sitting within the space in order for its own deconstruction mm -hmm. like that the access and the credibility that we will glean from within and also after um is are things that otherwise we wouldn't be able uh it gives you a certain credibility that you might even question the, cre the value of the credibility itself but that the words that you speak somehow become endowed with more salience 
Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about all of those things, not just the roads, but also these kind of elite academic spaces ac across the, the Western world. Yeah, so I, I think the university has um, just a role within society. It's um, meant to kind of cultivate socially responsive students and um, that my view of just the role of the university I take with me wherever I, I am. So I, I find myself here and I often think, what does decolonization mean here? And like, how can I be part of continuing that process? And one way for me is like reversing uh, what has been done, but also I'm situated in an African studies department um, that, mm, I mean, I would say like 80% or 70% of the readings are from people who aren't necessarily from the continent. So part of my project is also to, to look at just like how knowledge has been framed as Western, how standard has been framed as Western, how um, expertise has also a Western um, bias. And so I, by, by having all of that within my body, I'm shifting that, um, but also, I'm shifting that at home at the same time because although I'm situated in Oxford, I don't, I don't believe in its project. Um, I believe in my project. And, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's the way I navigate both the project of decolonization at home and at Oxford, and it comes together because I exist. But no Congress, nobody, no committee, the power to tell us that we cannot stand up, speak up, and speak truth to power. We have a right to dissent. We have a right to protest for what is right, regardless of rule or no rule. We cannot and will not be silent. Okay, so having understood some of the ramifications and practices of, of protests within particularly the Birds Must Fall movement, let's talk about the right to protest as a right, as something that's enshrined in law. Uh, Jeet, I know you have a few questions uh, pointed at this. Uh, yeah, so I mean, my approach to international standards, as I keep on mentioning, is, is slightly skeptical. but. As Mbali was just saying, international standards do exist. So there was a, G a, GRS, a General Assembly resolution passed in 2014 that recognized the right to protest. The right to protest through general comments and special rapporteur reports has been recognized as an integral part of the freedom of assembly guaranteed in international human rights law. And there are, of course, best practices that are conceived by universities and also by the UN Special Rapporteur. So my question to Mbali was, to what extent are these best practices realized and what can while of course there aren't a set of sort of stagnant best practices that apply across time spans or across geographical context but are, are there certain norms or best practices that you think can serve as sort of words of advice for protests all across all across the globe a minimum core sort of best standard of best practices do you think 
So um, the standard of best practices for, in my knowledge, exist uh, both on a, an international level but also uh, on a continental level. So the, the UN Rapporteur released a report in 2016 that, that had recommendations of uh, how states should handle um, assemblies. This report is not binding, which means that um, states can, you know, get away with just using them as recommendations. Um, and I think uh, we need to kind of shift this and um, hold states more accountable to how they manage and uh, respond to protest. And, and the AU then also kind of extrapolated from that document and released a report on how to deal with um, assemblies in Africa. So I think the problem here is that they're not binding and so there's no accountability and the state and uh, its, its institutions can get away with um, very conservative responses and uh, the police force can also get away with heavy-handed responses on the protesters. So although they present themselves as reports that want to open up the shrinking state of dissent, um, they don't actually protect that space of dissent at all. So I'm thinking about something you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is the role that the public intellectual has to play because they're pushbacks to protests from right-wing movements. And I'm thinking about how those movements are also increasingly presenting themselves as protests. So do you think all forms of protests are legitimate. So if there were ideal international laws that guaranteed peaceful assembly, in your mind, what would that look like? Because I'm thinking about that and I could think of a lot of forms of protest that seem very questionable. Mm. So I, I think if the basis of a protest is a, a prejudice or um, some form of discrimination, then that that in itself is is not should not be protected because um, it's kind of it's it's not free speech um, and and also it's it's not protecting the rights of others. So protests are about kind of ex expressing a particular concern, but also understanding that there are other people around um, that protest or that assembly that should still have their rights protected. So I, I think that, you know, all of these reports and um, kind of all, all of the, the international standards and recommendations need to integrate an idea of, of a public assembly that is, doesn't have harm inherent in, in, in that movement. So I think we're getting a better picture of how protest relates very strongly with human rights because it is fundamentally about respecting and advancing human rights and it can't be anything in the contrary of that. Is that sort of what we're beginning to, to establish? So, I mean, I, I want to agree with you because human human rights, uh, the human rights discourse is kind of the dominant discourse at the moment. But I, I don't think that it translates very well in every context. And, and I also think that the, the, the international norms have um, kind of, they can limit what a protest can do. And um, a lot of the liberation movements were limited because they, 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 they adopted um, 
because they adopted the language of human rights um, and and so I I don't want to repeat that process and and so I, I don't think we can only look at protests through a liberal lens um, it goes beyond that it's people's livelihoods that are um, being put on a public platform and I don't think that liberal discourse discerns it enough yeah, and I mean, it's just like for, for an international human rights norm to emerge, kind of legally speaking, as something that's enforceable requires such a high level of consensus between international elite state institutions. It's just, we talked about this a lot, I think, in our first episode. It's just so rare for it to actually be on the kind of cutting edge of what's, and you know, I think it's probably more common for uh, protests and liberation movements to lead the way on, on these things. So you, you get the emergence of... Um, sort of self-determination as a legal norm in the decolonial context in the 1960s, which is far after most states had already, uh, you know, gone through the process of having national liberation movements paving the way and generating the, the theory that underpins that as well as the kind of rhetoric that underpins it. So it's, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that it's very, it's very rare that uh, international human rights norms can, can lead the way in that sense. No, and, be, and beyond that, I think, I think Bal is really right when pointing out this potentially more sinister, you know, side of using human rights as a language in protest, because, of course, human rights is also a variable that's contributed to establishing this binary of orderly versus disorderly protest. Because, of course, when you're protesting from within the framework of human rights in, 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 a, in a sort of in one way or another, you're, you're protesting from the framework of the orderly. And so that's acceptable. That's seen as within the framework of what the system, which is inherently skewed and, and problematic, and unequal can tolerate and can handle and can absorb but as soon as it becomes disorderly that's you know and that's transcending the human rights language then that's when we're really starting to see see a problem emerge for at least those who hold powerful positions within the current system and access to that system is so mediated by power and status and wealth um, so with that the podcast is cancelled <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> No, okay, this is the best conversation ever that could have possibly come out of this because, and then this is what is really interesting about this whole conversation about the overarching theme of this of this entire uh, season really is protest, but also resistance to human rights itself, subversion of human rights language, sometimes the strategic adoption of that language in order to gain certain actual um, footholds and to transmute but there's always a process of transmission, right? There's a process of translating your your concrete uh, liberatory demands into something that is legible for others, um, and so that's entirely important to to mention that human rights, as it's uh, currently formulated um, institutionally, linguistically, um, can create incredible constraints on liberation movements themselves, um, be because they have to operate within the realm of the orderly as well but also because the way that human rights has been theorized historically um has emerged from a very enlightenment uh, yes. uh discourse it has it ha yeah. emphasizes uh individual versus collective rights um it also um has been utilized in the service of intervention something else that we've talked about on the podcast so um but i think this conversation actually uh if human rights can <laughs> be salvaged from uh, from this conversation, um, it's that it can be utilized as a vehicle, at least, sometimes, um, in certain spaces, if you know exactly how to utilize this tool, um, if it's useful. Um, but that liberation language, resistance language, sometimes can't be encapsulated within those boxes and uh, sometimes needs to 
be fought on its own ends. And with that said, I think we're about time. Thank you so much for tuning in to Declarations, a human rights podcast. Thank you so much, Bali, for joining us today. This has been a phenomenal pleasure, and, and it's been so great to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me here. I mean, I think the conversation was shaped by all of us. Thank you, everyone. Thanks to the panel. Check out our Twitter at our Twitter handle at DeclarationsPod. And please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Look for Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about refugee rights. See you then.